is an illicit radio program. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome. Got a selection of good things on sale, stranger. Hello everyone and welcome to the 15th episode of the internet's favorite horror chat show, The Bazaar, with me, your host, Richard, aka The Fear Merchant. Now tonight is a bit of an unconventional episode because I interview an interviewer by request of a past guest, Chris Carvetto, aka Werewolves in Siberia. So this is what the show is all about, bringing people together to share ideas and stories to entertain you the listeners now i'd just like to announce that we've just smashed a thousand downloads last week well past that now things are flying and a little shout outs to all our listeners from around the globe in the last two weeks since episode 14 we've had listeners from the united states ireland united kingdom poland india canada italy sweden indonesia france Lebanon, Germany, Australia, Malta, Slovakia, and New Zealand. And a very big shout out to the very eager listener in Kansas. I hope you enjoyed all the back catalog and this included, if you're still listening and not sick of this voice. And I'd like to give a shout out to Matthew Quinn. He sent me a lovely new book, a Lovecraft inspired novel, The Thing in the Woods. And I'm going to put some links in the show notes to that digital download now david weiner he is my guest for this evening he's a veteran of the industry for the last 25 years he's had 13 years under his belt in entertainment tonight and he is the last editor currently of famous monsters of filmland magazine and he has a new blog it came from blog.com so there'll be links for all that in the show notes and he has over the years interviewed lots and lots of people that you would know and we discuss a lot of that in the show so i won't ruin the surprises here but it's a really fun episode one of the longest that we've had so for now sit back relax and enjoy the show Hello, David. Welcome to the show this evening. How are you? I am great. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. And it's, a, it's actually a lovely morning for yourself. I can see the sun shining <laughs> brightly on your forehead there. We're, we're chatting over Skype. The magic of the internet. It's night there. It's morning here. And uh, uh, I love how it's an even playing field over the uh, the ones and zeros. Yeah, it's kind of from dawn to dusk situation. Isn't it? Right. So, David, I asked this of all my guests you have to tell us who are you why why should we care why should you care well you maybe shouldn't care at all but uh i've I've done some interesting things and i've talked to some interesting people and i think people might be interested in hearing some tales about that but uh, i am the former editor or last editor currently of uh, famous monsters of filmland magazine and i've been in the entertainment industry in uh, hollywood for the last 25 plus years, I, I did about 13 years at Entertainment Tonight writing for them uh, and ET Online. And uh, I bounced around on movie sets and I, I've seen things you wouldn't believe. <laughs> well, that's going to make for some great listening, I'm sure. And I'm very eager to dig right into that 
wealth of experience that you have. You're you're nearly in the industry as long as I am alive. I'm quite a young <laughs> chap despite yeah. the uh, appearance here and the big beard. So how did you begin in the industry? Were you always living in L.A. or how did it work? Uh, I'm from back uh, east in the eastern United States where I grew up in New York and uh, Chicago, uh, families from Chicago. And uh, I've uh, I've known ever since I was a kid that I was very – I love movies, movies, TV, music, uh, entertainment. I always knew that I was going to be doing something in entertainment. And uh, uh, I can really pinpoint very specifically the moment it all changed for me, and that's when I saw Star Wars in the theater – I was nine years old, and I walked into that movie as a fan of uh, Star Trek and 2001 Space Odyssey and and that kind of entertainment, and I walked into that movie not quite sure what to expect. I walked out of that theater an entirely changed individual, and I, I knew what my calling was. I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to make people feel as exhilarated as I did walking out of that movie somehow. And that's when I started on the path of learning how movies would be made and hopefully make some of my own one day or at least be part of the industry. Excellent. Well, you've put an age on yourself there now. People can uh, turn back the clock because as of, I think, last week, wasn't it the 40th anniversary of Star Wars? So 49, is that right? <laughs> there you go. Good math. Yeah, yeah. Jeez, I got through school. It's not too bad. Well, you know, it's one of those things with uh, I used to, I went through about a 10 year period where I, I kind of hid my age because I realized that any pop culture reference I made would get a lot of scratched heads and people would look at me quizzically. And uh, I, I had to reconcile with my fact that you just get older and you experience more and. Uh, I, I now uh, traffic in nostalgia and uh, vintage uh, happy memories while I also enjoy present day pop culture. So I, I at least can say I was there for whatever happened over the fast, past four decades. And, you know, I could say, oh, well, wait, you know, it wasn't called A New Hope when it first came out. You know, it, yes, it, yes. I, I had a different crawl. You know, this scene was added later you know a lot of people because we live in a world of revisionist history and we could do that now uh they don't know necessarily what it was like or what the perception was for anything that was first run uh nor do they even realize something is necessarily a remake um and so i'm happy to at least sort of create a little uh insight and perspective because i you know i walk around with a cane now Well, kind of similarly, I went to see The Phantom Menace when I was mm-hmm. only a wee lad of, uh, I don't know, was that 99 that came out? So that's nearly yeah. 20 years. Uh, I was probably seven or something like that. So that kind of blew my mind at the time seeing... That's the perfect age. Yeah, that's... it is. Star Wars, like, like say, James Bond, for example, it's a generational thing. You know, it's a franchise that's been around forever now. And... Uh... There will always be new iterations and new reworkings of the original concept, and you were either there for the beginning or you were there in the middle or you're there now and it's new to you. But uh, people like to discount, well, the prequels don't count. It's not canon. There's Jar Jar Binks. You know what? (laughs) You know what? If you're a kid, it's magical to you, and that's important to you. And if it it rocked your world in some way and and has even sort of – you know, uh, arranged your trajectory to be towards uh, appreciating that and the whole 
uh, genres that go with it, then by all means, I think that's great. You know, don't don't shit on the planet menace. <laughs> of course, yeah, no, that was my sort of starting point. But knowing that that was sort of, you said you could pin it back to that movie, but how did it kind of go from there? Like, why did that movie in particular? I know it's captured the generation, obviously, the last forty years. That goes without saying. But for you at the time, how did you think it was so different to everything, and why did that inspire you? to sort of go down the entertainment route? Well, you know, that's a great question. Um, because when you see things on TV and you see movies and you're experiencing things new up till the age of 10 or 11 or 12, uh, it's all new to you. You know, they say that it's the same story just told in different ways. And uh, the same goes with Star Wars. Star Wars was really Flash Gordon because George Lucas didn't have the opportunity to make Flash Gordon. So he said, I'll make my own version. I remember my dad said, oh, well, that was a really fun movie. I'm glad you like it so much. But I liked Flash Gordon. And that's that's my Star Wars. Yeah. You know, yeah. Roger Moore, who unfortunately recently passed away, but at a ripe old age of 89, he was my first James Bond. You know, and my dad said, oh, you know, I loved that. That was a great movie. The Spy Who Loved Me, which is the first movie I went to yes. with him, a big screen. But he said, you know what? My James Bond will always be Sean Connery. And uh to answer your question, you know, there's general generational things where uh, you you when you're younger, it's new to you. And I saw Star Wars and it inspired me in in a way that no other thing before I saw it inspired me to want to be more interested. Uh, it, it really piqued my interest on in the filmmaking process. Up until then, I, I took it at face value. It's an interesting story. There's fun special effects, whatever. I'll just get lost in the story. This is the first movie that changed my mindset where I said, I want to know how did they make this? I mean, I used to – I laugh because it's true. I used to start understanding the process of movie making where, okay, you've got to get a bunch of actors. you got to get a bunch of set dressing and props and you put it all – in front of the screen and you, you yell rolling and cut and in between you reset it up so i was confident okay well the way they shot star wars was they shot all those dark fights in space and i envisioned george lucas in his astronaut you you know yeah. uh in, in his spacesuit saying okay all tie fighters over here all x-wings over there and action <laughs> shoot it all right now everybody reset but they did it in space. Like that was how my, I grasped it at first. So, you know, obviously it was incremental, but uh, I'm still convinced they shot it in space. I am too. I think you nearly ruined it, that there for me, that thought. <laughs> so what was your first job in the industry after that? What, like, how did you channel that inspiration? Uh, I became aware that you could get a job in the movies. I, aware, I became aware that you can work in Hollywood and, uh, work with actors and make films and, and, and be a part of the set. And uh, I was determined to go to film school. And so I went to film school in uh, Ithaca, Ithaca College in upstate New York, and did that for four years. And uh, my first taste of the industry just even wet my feet in terms of how I wanted, where I wanted to live and be. Uh, I had an internship at uh, at the Disney Studios, Ooh. and, and uh, it was my the summer of my between my sophomore and my junior year, and uh, I got to live in Los Angeles and work on the set, uh, sorry, on the lot, 
And even though I didn't work on a movie set, I got a real sense of what the mechanics of, of, of being on a movie studio were like. And I was more in the marketing end of things. I was actually in a, uh, a department that did product placement. Right. In so it's true. So, it's true. All of it. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, my, my first, my, one of my first jobs other than sort of delivering things to people was going along and I got to see dailies for movies. And I, and, and our job was whatever movies that they were making at the time. Uh, again, I'll date myself, but like one of the movies that I remember seeing dailies for was honey. I shrunk the kids. Oh yeah. Favorite of mine. And they, they, we'd sit there and, and, and they'd say, all right, let's make sure that they got all the products that are supposed to be in there, in there and make some notes and, you know, potentially even require a reshoot of a certain thing to make sure that. Uh, promises were fulfilled in terms of featuring a product correctly. Right. Uh, so that was very interesting. And I also got a sense of, um, sorry, I also got an opportunity uh, with one of the direct, one of the guys I worked with. Um, he had aspirations uh, to be a director. And he had already got the ball rolling because uh, he was doing some PSAs, public service announcements. And that was my first experience standing on a set uh, that wasn't in film school with a walkie-talkie and a headset and, and wrangling cast members and working with a couple stars. And uh, I, that was, it was a priceless opportunity for me. And the guy who gave me that opportunity, who uh, was directing those, he was just one of the guys in my department running production resources is what they called it. But that guy ended up being a really well-known director, his name's DJ Caruso, mm -hmm. and DJ Caruso, uh, he's probably best known for like Eagle Eye, uh, Suspiria. Wait, no, Suspiria's Argento. No, 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 not Suspiria. Uh, <laughs> uh, suburbia, suburbia, suburbia. Yes, yes. You know, uh, the Salt and Sea. He did some really interesting stuff, but he got he got really up there. Yes, he wasn't Dario Argento, but um, uh, it was a great opportunity. And so I'm getting sort of mired in that story uh, about starting with an internship. But it really opened my eyes to the opportunity that uh, if you are talking to the right people and if you are just an eager, helpful individual, they will give you an opportunity. And so I learned from that, uh, op from from being at Disney, that I could be I could live in Los Angeles. I could handle that. Uh, and that there are film opportunities everywhere you look. You just have to talk and sell yourself politely and diplomatically. And so after college, I knew I was going to go straight into Los, to Los Angeles and look for work. And again, it was all about friends. I had some friends who had a foothold in, uh, in other elements of the industry. And my first job was as a runner or production assistant for Full Moon Entertainment, which <laughs> I don't know if you're aware of them, but they, they've, you know, they've really gone on to be well known for really fun, trauma style, crazy franchises like nice. the Puppet, Puppet Master franchise. Oh, yeah, yeah. Demonic toys and all that stuff like oh, that. Cool. By way of that, I got more, you know, set opportunities to work on you know, Puppet Master 3 or be the locations assistant for, you know, demonic toys and yeah, yeah. You know, working on Netherworld and some real winners. But uh, it's great. A, you take what you can get. And it's uh, 
that was, it's all about creating relationships and, and, and putting yourself out there. And if you can afford it working for free and that got, uh, by literally combing, uh, the trades, I found an opportunity to be, uh, an intern on a movie called round numbers. Okay. And, and they were super low budget but within a week, they started paying me, and they made these made me the second second assistant director for this movie. Uh, I didn't know anything about that job, but I quickly learned, and uh, uh, it, it was it came and went, and it went into infamy by probably going by going straight to DVD or actually VHS at the time. But uh, uh, Kate Mulgrew was the star of that movie, uh, who was the uh, the captain on uh, Star Trek. Voyager. Oh, she, went, she went on to do that later, but uh, um, that got me on my path to being in production. And uh, I'll stop there, and I'll wait for another question. So I don't. I know because uh, I was just going to say there was so much there that I didn't know when to interject. <laughs> you can interrupt at any time because I will just go on. No, because cause I, I was like, hmm, I'd love to know about product placement and kind of how that works because absolutely. you know in some movies it's very blatant and like in your face that it's almost offensive because what what springs to mind because it's kind of topical is atari in the original blade runner and that was mm-hmm. kind of plastered everywhere but then in the recent like atari is pretty much dead and buried I'm, I'm sure some other company just owns it but in the new blade runner trailer they have a big neon backdrop of atari as well as like yeah. a nod to how mm-hmm. in your face it was in the original kind of thing. And I thought that was kind of interesting <laughs> that they're doing that. Not that this podcast oh. is sponsored by Atari. <laughs> but... That's exactly. We, uh, I want a bunch of ET cassettes after this uh, discussion. They better send them our way after they lift those up from being buried in the sand, literally. You know that. Yeah, right? I do. I do know that story. That turned out to be true, which is amazing. Yeah. Yeah, we, we all thought that, that that was an urban legend, and it turned out to be absolutely true. But yes. uh, And it's also literally the, uh, the the title that buried uh, Atari, but that's another tale. But I think I think with Blade Runner, they're trying to be within canon, and it is kind of a clever nod. And that's almost like a narrative. It's like, they, you know, they're not getting any money. They're, they're just being cheeky about it because they know that they're trying to be, you know, if it's, if it's whatever is the current – you know, if, if it's a Wii, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. Xbox or something like that, that will inevitably be dated in, in 10 years or, or less as well. So they, at least they're sticking to their guns with that one. Yeah. Is it, no, it's very, very unrealistic that Atari will be around in 2049. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm still waiting. It's, it's almost 2019 and I'm still waiting for my damn flying car. Where is it? Exactly. Where's my yeah. spinner? So, yeah. So there's the product placement angle, but. Genuinely, in with regards that, how do you go about like putting stuff into movies? Because what do well, you kind of pick up from that? Or how what... how are you obliged? Is it like there has to be exactly twenty seconds of Coca Cola every thirty minutes, or how does it work? Well, there's all, there's a variety. Now, mind you, I was not in on the you know the contract negotiations for any of these things, yeah. so I I didn't see it from that viewpoint. But uh, I was in from the ground level in that. Um, the, the, you know, it's, it's different for every single company. And sometimes the company is begging the, uh, filmmakers to be in their movies. Sometimes the filmmakers are begging the company to be in their movies. And, uh, sometimes it's, 
depending on how much money that the, the company gives the studio, uh, it, it depends what their visibility will get. So it's different for everything. You know, sometimes it's sitting on a shelf. Sometimes they have to get, you know, on purpose and within view. And sometimes they uh, they are, are paying more money for an opportunity. You know, James Bond is, is like the prime uh, example and, a, and equal opportunity offender. Yeah, like you know, Heineken you, there recently. There you go, yeah. Heineken. Oh, there happened to be, if you watch um, GoldenEye, yeah. You know, there have to be a giant truck carrying Heineken cans. You know, <laughs> James Bond rams a rams a, a tank through it in their street chase. That's no, that's no, uh, you know, co- coincidence. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was just uh, thinking my, about the more recent beach bar where he's gulping down Heinekens. In, yeah. Uh, is, well, that's the thing is, you know, like at, like Aston Martin and and Heineken and uh, yeah, wasn't Smirnoff you know, was like Please. Smirnoff vodka. You know, they say, all right, well, if we if we, you know, they they practically cover half the budget if they do these sort of ancillary opportunities as well. All right, well, we need to get a bunch of commercials that are Bond themed commercials. Uh, you know, we have to not only include it in the background as sort of a casual pickup where he, he takes a drink and it happens to be our brand. But they say, how can we integrate this uh, into a set piece or a chase or a stunt or a gag? Uh, you know, these, these are very high level product placement elements, whereas uh, other elements there, you know, if you're in a grocery store and uh, they're shopping and they're arguing over who's, you know, had an affair, whatever's, in the background, in the aisle that they chose, that that is a very specific, concentrated thought about what is going to be there behind them. Right. You know? and, right. So and, it's whatever's and closest how, behind their head paid the most money, and whatever goes down the line, kind of thing. Or, or you know, uh, it depends on how deep into the rabbit hole you want to go. Someone, you know, the filmmaker might have said, "Well, that needs to be uh, Charmin." toilet paper because he's you know she's trying to clean up the shit that he's created and it's symbolic you know <laughs> i mean it, it depends how how much you want to look into it how film school you want to get about it and sometimes it's very uh, uh relevant and sometimes it's incidental but you know you go you can go to uh one of the most famous examples is et the extraterrestrial they wanted uh m&m's that yes. E.T. was going to follow a trail of. And Eminem said, nah, we're not interested in, in it was being... Reese's Pieces, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, well, we all know it's Reese's Pieces very specifically because Eminem said, yeah, this looks dumb and we don't want to be part of it. Yeah, Even yeah. Spielberg, you know? So uh, it, 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 it's all sorts of... Uh, basically, companies reach out to other companies. Uh, sorry, studios reach out to uh, these various brands to incorporate them. And uh, other times, you know, it's like you look at David Lynch and you look at Blue Velvet. You know, we all love that moment when, it, you know, he's like, what's your favorite beer? And he yeah. goes, uh, Heineken. And he goes, fuck that shit. Paps Blue Ribbon. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. That's a choice that someone had to get clearance for that. If not, you know, it, it, you know, Paps Blue Ribbon might not might have said, listen, we don't want to be in a movie that. Uh, where we have this, such a despicable character as Frank Booth, played by Frank Hopper. So you can't use our product because we don't want to be associated with it. Yeah, you know? oh, I get you. And then on, on the flip side, just to, you know, again, not to go down this rabbit hole, but you've got Mac and Me, which is, you know, the... The McDonald's the, the, alien. Oh, yeah, this is the BT, <laughs> which is basically just a big McDonald's commercial. Yeah, it's notoriety now at this stage, that Mac yeah. and Me, like, yeah. 
Yeah, no, we could talk about <laughs> our different favorite product placements for the night. But just getting back on track a bit. Do you think now with the route you went down and working for free and doing internships, do you think that's possible now given like the saturation of the industry to an extent? That Absolutely. Could, if you were nine years old again and you saw uh, Star Wars Episode Seven. The Force Awakens, and you wanted to go down the same path, do you think you'd be able to do it? Or what do you reckon is the current sort of climate in the industry? Well, you know, the entertainment industry is not the coal mining industry. You know, it's not dying. It's it's there. It's it's always, it's, it's, it's the United States top export. And there's always uh, more and more channels uh, of distribution. And uh, no matter what you're doing, whether you're doing a magazine, whether you've got an app, whether you've got a VR uh, game or whether you have a movie or a TV movie or a reality show, people are hungry for content, you know, whether it's going to end up on YouTube or whether it's going to end up on the big screen, someone has to spend the time to make it. So they're always hungry for creative minds and hungry people with a solid work ethic to, to work on and create product and content. So absolutely. You know, um, I, I credit anything that I've accomplished in my in my uh, career to uh, a couple things: perseverance and 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 interest, um, a code of ethics and morals where you are known to be a reliable and good person. To the, for the most part, people remember that because there's lots of bad apples in this industry, but also getting yourself out there. Uh, I mean, uh, some of my greatest uh, career opportunities have come because I either saw something and pursued it because I was interested in being part of it, or I talked to the person who was standing in, in front of me because I liked their sweatshirt, said Famous Monsters. The guy turned out to be the editor of Famous Monsters. Right, I, right. Ended, I ended up writing for them, and I ended up being the editor myself down the line. I, I could have said, oh, I loved that magazine when I was a kid and didn't say a word, but I just happened to, you know, bring up some conversation and, you know, the, the dots were connected because I had already achieved things before then. Yeah. Cause I could, some guy and he said, oh, you like famous monsters. We all do. Isn't that awesome? We love horror movies and sci-fi and fantasy. But I had, I was working at entertainment tonight at the time. He's like, what do you do? And I said, oh, I. I work at Entertainment Tonight, and I just came back from a Star Trek Into Darkness junket, and I was talking to JJ and yeah, Benedict, yeah, all those yeah. people. And he said, you know, his eyes went wide, and he said, oh, I've been looking for someone to, you know, connect the dots between the original series and the JJ movies. How'd you like to write it? I'm like, how'd I like to write for my the, the magazine I loved as a kid? You know, twist yeah. my arm, of course. And I, I never even asked how much it was. I didn't care because it was a wonderful opportunity. And, of course. You know, uh, you'd, like with the internship and you know any opportunity that, that comes your way, if you just show a passion and an interest, the, the money and the opportunities will follow in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, but you know I would say to an extent, you know, it used to be the 15 minutes of fame. But now mm -hmm. I would nearly say it's the 15 seconds of fame because there's so much content being shoved out that is kind of yesterday's news for anything mm -hmm. would you have any new take on how to shape persistence into something productive that you do stand out from the crowd that is something that is completely arbitrary 
it, it, it's sort of the law, the Murphy's law of attrition, where you just have to keep on like Sisyphus pushing a big boulder up a hill. Yeah, if it's yeah, yeah. if you want to be doing it, you just got to be doing it. Because if you're in it for the big jackpot at the end of the rainbow, uh, you wrong, will, you're the wrong race kind of thing. Yeah, you you likely won't find it. But if you are constantly creating content and putting it out there and being consistent and saying, you know, if everything you create, you say, maybe this will hit, maybe this will hit. You know, I guess there's an element where you hope in the back of your head that'll happen. But uh, if you're hoping everything's going to hit at a certain point, you're going to be disappointed when nothing ever hits. Whereas if you're just doing it to to satisfy your own interests and, uh, you know, I when I was working at Famous Monsters, I created a magazine that I wanted to see. You know, I said, uh, whenever I was creating any content, I, I think to myself, what would I want to watch? What would I want to read? What would what would entertain me? What would make me think? What would make me laugh? What would make me uh, want to tune in for more and turn the page, whatever it may be. And uh, you use yourself as your own as your own litmus test. And uh, you got to stand by that. I mean, you've got great ideas and you've got terrible ideas. But uh, I think unless you have zero sense of yourself and what you create, and there are plenty of people out there who are like that, uh, you can create some really good stuff that will eventually stick. And then to answer your question, something will hit at one point, and it's usually the last thing you expected. Exactly. And do you think, just going back to Famous Monsters, what was the feedback like when you kind of took the reins from a magazine that you loved growing up did people change their opinion once you were uh, out on front there as editor? Yeah, uh, I was very. I got a very encouraging response. Um, I took a magazine that I loved as a kid, and I knew that uh, you know it, it, it's a it's a multi layered question, and I'll try and keep it simple. But uh, the most important thing that I, I had to recognize was famous monsters will always be the creator of Famous Monsters Magazine's magazine. So Forrest J. Ackerman created Famous Monsters Magazine in 1958, and he's gone now. And the people who love Famous Monsters uh, connect Famous Monsters with Forey, because Forey's personality was all over that magazine. Uh, so when I took over the reins as editor, I wanted to make sure that there was there's plenty of Forey and Forey's legacy, what he loved, what he loved to cover, his enthusiasm, his 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 boyish exuberance of anything that was sci-fi, fantasy, horror. Uh, I wanted to keep that element there, um, but I also did not want to be Forey Ackerman because I know I never will be, or could be, or be perceived as Forey Ackerman. So. I set out to find a balance between the new and the nostalgia and to cover the classic horror movies that go way, you know, way back horror, sci-fi and fantasy uh, and make sure that there's plenty of retrospectives that you can look back on the anniversary of, you know, whether it's, um, Oh, what did I do? I did everything from Logan's run to Dracula yes. to yeah. American Wolf in London uh, a constant stream, you know, even Star Wars. Um, but I also wanted to make sure that there was a nice balance of new material because a lot of people, when they thought about famous monsters, 
they forgot that they were covering brand new stuff as it was coming out as well. And so uh, it's very important to recognize that, uh, you know, I, I remember I covered Pete's Dragon, the remake of Pete's Dragon by Disney there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's a it's a movie about a dragon who's who's befriends a, a child. Yes, it's a remake. It wasn't everyone's cup of tea, but it was new. And uh, I'm trying to cater also to a whole new generation of of fans of sci-fi fantasy and horror and you got to start young and so you have to be able to appeal to uh, a younger audience as well with content that they might find interesting and so to answer your question what what was the perception was people really liked what i was doing because i was finding this balance between new and nostalgia and really sort of tipping my hat to foray and the likes of you know lon chaney and karloff and and all the classics uh while also covering present day stuff and um what i brought to the magazine that it didn't have before was something that i had sort of picked up from my experience with entertainment tonight and that's uh you know trying to up the marquee value of the magazine to make it uh, a little more broadly appealing and so i really uh wanted to involve more filmmakers, more behind-the-scenes craftspeople, and actors, uh, well-known actors, you know. Uh, and I was able to secure these people by uh, knowing how to do it uh, by way of Entertainment Tonight and how that process would work. And uh, I, I think I upped the marquee value of the magazine where you would have the likes of, you know, Guillermo del Toro. Yeah, you'll have to or... give me a few tips now as well to get them on board as well. <laughs> Well, let me give Guillermo. I'll, I'll, I'll phone Guillermo. I'll have him come in on this conversation. Then you can invite him. You know. <laughs> but uh, you know, a key to a key to it was uh, uh, knowing who might care about famous monsters in the first place. And I knew that the Mark Hamill's and the John Landis's and the Joe Dante's and the James Cameron's of the world, who I all brought to the magazine exclusively, I knew that they loved famous monsters. And so I knew I could appeal to that. And if they would have time to do it, they would give me that time. And uh, a key element to that was they, they, were, they wanted to see themselves in Famous Monsters magazine. They didn't want to be on the podcast. They didn't want to be on the, a website. Um, they didn't say that they didn't want to, but I just knew that. I knew that yeah. they wanted to see themselves in print. So, yeah, no, because I wanted to bring it up organically, but you sh- shot the gun there of it that you actually were talking to Mark Hamill and stuff, and he has mentioned Famous Monsters in the past so he was obviously more than happy to come on was he mark hamill has been very good to me because when i first talked to him i was at entertainment tonight and uh he did this little movie called sushi girl this is before force awakens uh came about and it it was even announced that the original trilogy cast was going to be coming and this was before disney bought lucasfilm oh i think i know where this is going yeah well, <laughs> just to, to sort of give my, my relationship with Mark Hamill as a Famous Monsters fan is I talked to him about Sushi Girl, where he does, gives this great sort of almost Joker-style performance. It's, a, it's an amazing performance. Uh, I gave him the time on Entertainment Tonight for a movie that, that I think Entertainment Tonight normally wouldn't care about. Right. Uh, and we, we got to talking about Star Wars at a certain part. And uh, during his, you know, he's been asked about Star Wars a million times. This is obviously before the whole resurgence of Star Wars again with a whole new trilogy. But yeah. he said 
I said, you know, what was your most indelible memory of the Star Wars experience? You know, whether it was a, a moment on set or seeing your 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 Luke Skywalker action figure in your hands. You know, what what meant the most to you? And he he talked about being in in the desert with with uh, Alec Guinness and in the, these sort of uh, surreal moments with a you know a Wookiee on one side and a and a guy in a in a robot suit with his head off smoking a cigarette on the other. And um, but what he said really meant uh, that meant a lot to me was he said you know for for a guy who who grew up watching Ray Harryhausen movies and and reading Famous Monsters magazine this was surreal and fun and amazing like being in the cantina and I remember and this was before I had any involvement with Famous Monsters other than being a fan. I, I immediately recognized this sort of secret geek handshake. Like, oh, oh, Mark Hamill, Luke Skywalker, who's sitting right in front of me that I'm in awe with. He's he's just a a movie fan. He just loves monster movies, yeah. you know. And he grew up reading famous monsters too. And uh, I I always squirreled that one away. And uh, cut to I spoke with him one more time. I mean, I could tell a whole long Mark Hamill tale. Um, yeah, I'm talking with David here now. I'm not talking with Mark Hamill. <laughs> you, you can continue that story if you want. Well, uh, I say Mark Hamill's been good to me because I, I followed up with um, uh, right after Disney bought Lucasfilm, uh, I was approached by the distributor of Sushi Girl saying, you know, do you want to talk to Mark Hamill about the, the Blu-ray release of the movie? And my first thought was, well, you know, I already kind of covered it for him. But maybe he'll talk about Star Wars, you know, and what he thinks about, you know, the, the whole sale and everything like that. And yeah, yeah. This is before there were any announcements. Basically, Disney said, you know what, there's going to be three new movies and go chew on that while we figure it out. That's yeah. it. Yeah. And um, I, I talked about Sushi Girl some more. And then I said, you know, expecting him to sort of either say, well, I can't talk about it. Well, I don't know anything. Uh, I said, you know. What's up with the new Star Wars? You know, will we see the return of uh, of Luke Skywalker? Do you think? And he's like, Oh yeah, oh yeah, we're doing it. We we we're definitely going back. We've all but signed on the dotted line. But yeah, I'm talking to this person and talking to Kathleen Kennedy and the writers and da da da. And I just my mouth dropped. I'd say so. I'd say got, you were picking it up <laughs> off the floor for a good ten minutes there. <laughs> and I got after, and then he went on for ten, twelve minutes about what he'd like to see with those spinoffs that they said that they were going to do and what he'd like to see with the story. He didn't know yet what they, exactly they were going to be doing. Um, but I remember getting off the phone with him and I just thought to myself, I immediately just did a search on Google and I'm like, has he mentioned this to anyone else? And I'm like, took off your glasses, wiped your eye. You were like, Jesus. <laughs> and I just you said, well, right. down. type, 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 send. And I, on entertainment tonight, I said, you know, I just put it out there, you know, that, they're coming back because he said so. And this is what he'd like to see. And uh, it got picked up around the world. And that uh, was very satisfying because I broke that news. And uh, it was a, a full calendar year before any official announcement was made by Lucasfilm that the original trilogy cast were coming back. Yeah. <laughs> so, and did anyone kind of like hunt you down for that to retract it or anything? Or was it? Oh, the Disney police? You mean? Yeah, the Disney police. Yeah. Was there any people in like mouse helmets coming up to your door or anything? Yeah. Well, I was concerned that my, my phones were being tapped for a little while there. No, I'm kidding. No, there's zero. Really? Zero. I'm Nothing. actually very Nothing. surprised now. I suppose because there was no uh, <laughs> non-disclosures or anything uh, signed I at that think, point. 
I think they kind of put a lid on things very quickly afterwards because after he said that and I put that out there, people hit up everybody else. They put up, you know, hit up Harrison Ford. They hit up uh, Carrie Fisher. And uh, I, it's funny. I, I, only, I within about a month after that, I had an opportunity to sit down with Harrison Ford uh, at a junket to do an on-camera interview for the, a movie that he was doing about Jackie Robinson called 42, where oh, he played, nice. he played the, uh, the, the, the team owner who gave Jackie Robinson his opportunity to break uh, racial color lines. And, um, you know, so we talked about the movie, and then, of course, I, I had some time when I talked to him, and I said, so, you know, what can you tell me about Star Wars? And before I even got uh, 10 seconds into the question, he basically just made the my lips are sealed motion and went and then I'm like, well, Mark Hamill told me, and he's like, la la la, got it, got it. But anyway, to finish my exciting Mark Hamill tale, when I was with I left I left Entertainment Tonight, and now I was with Famous Monsters and. Force Awakens is now coming out. We all know that uh, you know the original trilogy cast is part of it, and this is right before they really went on their marketing blitz, where you realized that Luke Skywalker is nowhere on the poster. He's nowhere to be seen in the movie. He's a big mystery. Yeah, we don't yeah. know how involved he is or what his involvement is in the movie. And uh, I was. Uh, it's a different story when you're with Entertainment Tonight compared to Famous Monsters. And with Entertainment Tonight, nine times out of ten, people say, yes, when can I talk to you? With Famous Monsters, nine times out of ten, people say, who? Or... <laughs> <laughs> and so I had to reestablish myself with Disney and Disney publicity in terms of who we were and why people should care. And it was it was a real uphill battle and i was getting close to my deadline and i thought to myself i really want a mouthpiece from this movie i, I thought i could get jj because i had interviewed jj abrams for star trek for famous monsters that was my first piece for famous monsters for star trek into darkness um he was not available no one was available i said i'll take anyone new i'll take anyone old it was getting close to the wire where I was like, I'll take that third stormtrooper from the left on that second. <laughs> Anybody who just was in there in that movie for three seconds. And um, very long story short, I went through back channels to contact uh, Mark Hamill. And uh, you definitely have him on speed. I leave a direct line to him at this stage. Do you? <laughs> I wish I did. I wish I did. I, I, I won't. I, I'll basically say I went through some back channels and uh, my back channel connection basically said, listen, I, I, he's super busy. He's filming something. I'll try and see what I could do. And that would, to me was extremely encouraging he, because he was the first person said, who said, I will try and do something. Yeah. Where yeah Disney yeah. said, listen, we're trying to help you out, but everybody wants a piece of everybody and it's overwhelming. It's, it's unlike any film we've ever had before in the history of Disney in terms of overwhelming interest. But I, with very little time to go, I sent my contact five questions. And I said, maybe he can write his answers down and I could do a Q&A. And here's five questions. And I just threw that out there. And uh, lo and behold, the publicist who kept on saying, no, 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 I can't, I can't, even after I took him out to coffee and said, here's my beautiful magazine, here's why we're important, 
here's I've spoken to JJ before. This is so cool. Please, please, please. He said, I'll see what I could do. But they ultimately said, no, I'm sorry, I can't do anything. I got a phone call from him saying, are you available to talk with Mark Hamill on Sunday? And you're and like, was, yes, sir. <laughs> yes, I am. I'm available. And then he's like, okay, well, I've got your five questions here. You could ask all four of these, but that third question you can't ask. And I said, by all means, no problem. And uh, the greatest vindication was having that conversation with Mark, who gave me uh, probably 40 minutes of his time. And genuine question, would, did he remember who you are? Or did he feign it? Or would he remember everyone? Like, is he getting interviewed by loads of people all the time? Uh, you know, I jogged his memory in terms of context. You know, I said, oh, yeah, you know, thank you for talking with me. You know, I spoke with you about Sushi Girl, blah, blah, blah. He either knows who I am or he's not. Right, he right, right. He's like, you know, like, oh, okay. You know, I don't know if he did or not. Not, but... not to knock the merit no, of what that, you do, that, but that a doesn't... genuine question of like, I couldn't imagine someone remembering me who's that big if I ever talked yeah. to them. Some people, you know what, a quick aside, I some people have an elephant's memory. I uh, Benedict Cumberbatch remembered me, and I only had interviewed him once. Yeah. And I interviewed him for Star Trek Into Darkness, and then the next time I interviewed him was for Hobbit uh, Smog. And, um, oh, yeah, he you know, played the dragon, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. and, and uh, he comes up to me, and I, I introduce myself. I didn't even say I'd met him before. I just said, my, my name's David Weiner. Nice to meet you. And he looks at me and goes, We've met before, haven't we? And I'm like, yeah, we have. And then I didn't say anything. He goes, mm, was it Star Trek? And I'm yeah. like, yes. And I am very impressed with you. He's like, well, I'm great with faces, shit with names. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> yeah. So uh, anyway, I know this is an extremely long story about Mark Hamill, but just to wrap it up, he was uh, – he was a big fan of Famous Monsters magazine. And uh, when he found out that Famous Monsters was interested in talking with him, he told the publicist that I want to talk with Famous Monsters. And he only talked to only a couple outlets because they kept him they kept him away as a big mystery. Yeah. So I, he said, he said, you know what, I'm only talking to you and Time and Rolling Stone. And uh, I was the first one out of the gate with his interview. But he said listen, this is an opportunity for me to say thank you to Famous Monsters because Famous Monsters meant so much to me. I mean, Famous Monsters was my film school when I was 10 years old and I was a huge fan of King Kong. And I opened up the pages and I learned that King Kong was this tiny two-foot model that Willis O'Brien would do as a stop-motion animation. And that opened up a whole new world to me, Mark Hamill, that uh, I could even consider filmmaking as a career. And uh, anyway, he paid it back, and it was very generous of him. Great. No, it's kind of it's kind of funny actually how these things happen because, like, famous monsters especially. I don't think it ever made it across the pond here to Ireland, but a lot of people that I've talked to have mentioned it. And then over the last few months, famous monsters I saw on Twitter, but I wasn't too sure what it was. And mm. then only checking, or like following each other on Twitter, and say, like, "Hey, that's actually the same." website and then i'm talking to you today and you're involved and just funny how all these come together because just thinking of your own story there you would have been a fan of famous monsters you saw star wars and inspired you and then you're talking to mark hamill who you would have seen on the screen so it's kind of funny once you put your mind to it what you actually can get up to it's amazing how this stuff can come full circle 
And uh, it just happens organically. It is what it is. But uh, a lot of these things are opportunities that you have to make. I mean, uh, I they weren't going to, you know, Mark Hamill would never have reached out to Famous Monsters if I didn't try by hook and by crook to yes. get him by back channels. It's, it's just uh, you really uh, – a lot of life is you just got to show up and open your mouth. I mean, if you don't do that, opportunities don't come your way. No, it really it, is the case of – you know, if you don't ask, the answer is always going to be no, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So that's what I—that's what I'm slowly learning as I'm learning my craft. Nothing, nothing ventured, nothing gained. It's very true. Well, the way—the reason why we're talking is uh, you talked with Chris of Werewolves in Siberia, and he threw it out there. He's like, "Oh, you know, you do a horror podcast. Why don't you talk to Dave Weiner? You know, he was with Famous Monsters, and he does." you know, horror, he, he does stuff in, in genre pop culture as well. You know, maybe he's an interesting talk. You're finding out now that that's not true. <laughs> I'm on the edge of my seat here. This is some good listening for me. <laughs> I really don't care about the audience half the time. I just talk mm-hmm. to people I want to talk to. <laughs> well, that's the, then you're doing in my book, you're doing the right thing no, because you're doing, you're doing what's of interest to you. Right. Of course. And yeah. inevitably, it's probably of interest to a, a larger amount of people than you realize. The next step is just to get the exposure. And that's the part that you have to work on is yeah. to get, you know, more, more, more social media, more word of mouth, more all that kind of stuff. Otherwise, people aren't going to know about it. Sure, yeah, you'd be sending this on to back channels to Mark Hamill now himself. <laughs> exactly. Well, I've got Guillermo over here. I've got Mark over there. <laughs> We'll see who else we could name. Like, I was singing your praises on this guy's podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Great stuff. No, I was actually just looking because on your little bios online, you know, you can give very limited and precise information. So it was kind of funny to see there's only like three things. You were an, the editor of Famous Monsters. You mm-hmm. love 70s and 80s. <laughs> right. And the Tiki. Way uh-huh. Way. Let's talk about Tiki. What's that about? The Tiki sure. Ambassador. Uh, well, the Tiki Ambassador is my it's my Twitter handle, Tiki Ambassador. And uh, I, uh, I, when whole aside with social media, I, I sort of have a love hate relationship with social media. I in, ultimately think it's great because it connects with, connects people with opportunities to talk across the pond and you know, uh, create even job opportunities and exposure opportunities. But, uh, I hated Twitter when it first came out, but when I was with entertainment tonight and I, I was sort of not only writing for ET, but I was, they wanted me to sort of create more of a personality on social media for myself. I thought, all right, well, I got to come up with a name. All the David Weiners are taken. What do I do? What do I like? What am I into? Tiki. Yeah, how do I put Tiki in there somewhere? And I, I went to, uh, I, I just love Tiki, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But I had this great fez, this Shriner's fez that said Ambassador on it. And one of my friends said, I'm going to call he, they, that was my nickname. He said, you are now forever going to be the Ambassador or, <laughs> or just Ambassador. So I said, you know what, I will bestow upon myself the title of Tiki Ambassador, even though it's probably not deserved. Nice. But, a nice little concise story there. But oh. tiki, tiki is is uh, a quick a quick dive into that. It's uh, I'm very I'm very intrigued with with the pop culture elements of tiki. You know, it sort of represents sort of a a lifestyle, sort of a a like 
atomic frolic atomic frolic lounge lizard kind of oasis in your backyard barbecue mindset where you could be in a beautiful Polynesian resort in your mind whenever you get a, a tiki glass or a tiki mug and mix a drink and put on Hawaiian music or uh, es- you know Esquivel as as as, as goofy as you want to get uh, or the bomboras even you know there, there's a variety of music that sort of goes hand in hand with the lifestyle and I've always found that to be kind of my my desert island oasis in my mind when I want to get away from the the rat race. Yeah, the flaming volcano behind your head there is very... <laughs> I was staring at it the whole conversation. <laughs> uh, I, hope, I hope nobody jumped in behind me right now. We're doing some sacrifices today, so I hope that doesn't distract. No, guys, there's there's no volcano behind David. <laughs> Although, if I went to another room, you would see my collection of tiki mugs, and you might think otherwise. There are a couple of volcanoes there. Oh, very good. Are you on your laptop or your phone? Can you walk around? <laughs> uh, I can. I'll, I'll, I'll send some pictures perhaps later. Great. And why the 70s and 80s? Was that just the formative years for yourself? Yeah, yeah. That's 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 what I first inhabited when I started really soaking up pop culture. And, um, I, you know, I grew up, I, my childhood was in the 70s. My adolescence was in the 80s. And uh, so that's where I, I'm fixated in terms of the mass amount of pop culture that I absorbed. So that's what I'm really tuned into. But uh, unlike many and like many out there, uh, I'm very also dialed into what came before me. I, I, I'm always a little disappointed when I meet anyone of any generation, doesn't matter what age you are, old or young, when you've decided you're not interested in what happened before you. I'm very intrigued by anything that happened uh, years before me, you know, hundreds of years or, or decades or dozens. It's very important to be clued into the foundations of what makes your personal pop culture uh, important because uh, that's always standing on the shoulders of what came before. So you need to know your history to at least understand what's going on. And so uh, that's sort of my sweet spot, the 70s and the 80s, but I, I definitely have lots of interest. I mean, just last night I was watching Metropolis, uh, you know, Fritz Lang's Metropolis has uh, a restored version. Uh, yeah, and, was that any good, actually? Because I heard it was incomplete, the restored version. Well, well the, the incomplete, re- the restored version is the most complete version of Metropolis that, to date, we will ever have. Okay. Because, uh, in, I think it was in 2008, there was a, a print that was found. Uh, basically, when Metropolis came out, after it debuted, they cut it down by, uh, I think, about 25%. I could be wrong with my percentage, but a, a significant amount was cut. Uh, and so the movie in its in its genuine prime form has never been the same. And so everything we've watched since then has always been sort of the, the edited down version. But they found a more complete version uh, in 2008. And so they were able to restore much of it, but it was on a 16 millimeter print. And it was very badly damaged. So they restored it as best they could. And they kind of filled in the gaps where applicable. And there were even parts where if it doesn't make sense, they would have a card saying this is sort of what is supposed to happen right. from a nar- right. narrative view. But to me, it's astounding to watch because you have to understand that this is this is at the infancy of, of movie making. And what they pull off in that yeah, movie. vision was immense, like. I'm talking about Blade Runner. Uh, it's amazing because I was watching, you know, even within the, the first 
10, 15 minutes of the movie, you could see where Blade Runner, where Ridley Scott gets a lot of his vision for Blade Runner. It, yeah. it kind of, it's directly tied to inspiration from Metropolis. And uh, anyway, uh, these are important things, and that, I hope, answers your question. It does, no, because as I'm getting a little bit older, I'm only, I forget how old I am sometimes, 25, and I'm getting stuck in like the late 90s and noughties now myself. Like I'm nearly, you know, even technology. I remember when the Nintendo DS came out and they had Mario 64 on a handheld, which was from the Nintendo 64. Mm. And I was like, oh my God, I can't believe they have this on a handheld. And I'm completely stuck there, even though it looks like <laughs> crap now. And you see I... what's on a, a handheld phone, which is like, you know, miles ahead of that again. But I'm like, no, this is still amazing. I'm going to break out my DS kind of thing. So I'm just wondering, that's what I kind of wanted to allude to, would you be kind of stuck in that era because it was like your formative years? Do you have any like little collections of stuff in your house? Oh, yeah. I'm, I completely live in the past. <laughs> and, uh, and, and eBay is my best friend and my worst enemy because I'm constantly buying back pieces of my childhood that usually are expensive. But I try and limit, limit the expense to something that's reasonable. But um, uh I have collections, but I would not classify myself as a collector because I think that is a title that some people think uh, is is a capital C. And uh, I, I'm more trying to sort of fill in the gaps of of what I didn't have as a child or for nostalgia's sake to be able to hold it in my hand again. But I don't sort of say, well, I collect only this. I'm go I collect yeah, stamps. Yeah, and here's my basement fill of video games. Exactly. Yeah, I, yeah. I pet dispensers on this wall over yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. Stormtroopers. Like there was a while where I'm like, well, I love Star Wars so much. Well, what do I want to collect? Maybe I'll just get a different type of Stormtrooper, every Stormtrooper they make. And I, I even started down that route where I'm like, oh, there's just a cool Stormtrooper nutcracker. Oh, there's a Stormtrooper you know, but you know, at a certain point, I'm just like, where am I going to put all this stuff? And your collection will never be complete. That's the thing. Yes. Because then you might start getting knockoffs. Be like, oh, this is like the Chinese rip-off collection because I filled this sign. Yeah. Goes and goes and goes, and then there's re-releases and anniversaries and go off your I, game. I have uh, I have the completest gene, and it's again, it's my own worst enemy, and I. I I think I've already I've already made the biggest mistake. I, I have a young son. He's turning. He's, he's five, and I've turned him into a completist because half of half of his collection of what he has is me trying to fulfill the need to get things that I didn't have as a kid. That's my so fear got, as well. <laughs> he's got the best Star Wars action figure collection in the world because he gets all the little figures that I didn't have. Yeah. You know? yeah. Well, it's kind of cool that way, yeah. Because we'll say maybe a generation before wouldn't have had too much. And there was no such thing as this, I don't want to get too philosophical now, of like <laughs> capitalism and consumerism. But, you know, it was like they were happy enough with the toy soldiers and the little wooden horse. But now, since we, we've all grown up with like these multi-franchises and it's multi-generational, just kind of going back to what we were talking about at the start, with Star Wars, the way, you know, when I was younger, that was the start for me. And then your son now, who's probably the third generation of it, and he's getting all the best stuff. And it's like, yeah. oh, yes, I know all this stuff and I love it. And I'm going to play games and I'm going to watch movies with you that not necessarily would say your grandfather would have done because he's like, fuck that. <laughs> like, well, you, it, it's interesting because I, I think a lot of it is in the genes. You know, it's na nature and nurture. 
as opposed to nature versus nurture. But uh, I, my son could easily, I mean, I've tried to sort of expose him to certain things that I was interested in the kid and, you know, maybe, I mean, he's young, but he's rejected a bunch of things outright as he could care less. Yet there are right, certain give things. Give us a list of stuff that's crossed your dreams that he's. That's tried, well, uh, well, I will return to them. So I'm not even going to return. Because <laughs> um, I know, you know, it's a lot to absorb for him. But my point is he's really embraced like Star Wars or Star Trek and a lot of the stuff that I loved as a kid, he really loves, but he's gone a step further where the apple doesn't fall from far from the tree because he can recognize the the value and the coolness of vintage toys. Right. And 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 the respect that they that they require. He's not ripping stuff out of their pristine packages or anything. Well, I'm not that kind of collector where I, I you know, <laughs> don't touch the packaging. You yeah. gotta look at it. It's not a room full of lies. You can play with the toys too. Yet, yet half the time I'll buy something and he'll look at me and he'll say, "Dad, is that for you or for me?" You know, or he'll be like, "You know, Dad, flip for it." <laughs> no, that's yours. But sharing is caring. But, but he, uh, he, he's. I've broken out once he's gotten old enough where I'm confident he won't absolutely destroy it. You know, some of my vintage Star Wars stuff, like my Kenner Death Star playset, that I kind of thought he'd think was cool for about. 20 minutes and then not play with it all yet it becomes that toy becomes the centerpiece of his play yeah and so he always wants you know did you have this as a kid did you have that as a kid you know do i have more than you as a kid <laughs> are my toys better you know it's it's kind of fun i mean but i it it makes me very happy that uh that he's embraced all this stuff great great stuff now, I just want to bring up a little project that you have there now. It it came from blogs. Do you want to talk a little about that? Because that's where I sort of pulled the Mark Hamill story from as I was reading through the lovely blog that you have. Would you like to <laughs> talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. It's actually really, it's a very new blog. I started it in April and uh, uh, inspired by all the things that I love of genre pop culture. But uh you know, a taste of sci-fi, fantasy, and horror, both old and new. But uh, I, I've come to terms with the fact that I, I'm a man living in the past and that I, I really uh, uh, I love all these things that I got to cover in Famous Monsters. And now that I'm no longer with Famous Monsters uh, and Entertainment Tonight, I, I still have the uh, the itch to be writing regularly. And, uh, and uh, you know, everyone's got a blog, right? So why not me? Finally, I, I kind of thought to myself, you know, what's the justification for doing it? And it comes back to, uh, I kind of have a need to, to share these stories, uh, with things that I've done, people I've talked to and my observations about, uh, current and past, uh, pop culture topics. Um, but I, I think I've talked to a bunch of interesting folks and I've had some wonderful opportunities that, uh, I kind of are too rich not to share. So uh, it's been a great opportunity with uh, it came from it's it came from blog dot com. You can find me on Facebook and yeah, you can no, find I'll, me. I'll have everything in the show notes after so people can have yeah. a look. But how is it working out, you know, since you were with, you know, Entertainment Tonight, Famous Monsters, but then spinning out and having your own blog? How are you finding the kind of traffic towards it or how are you finding promoting it when it's, you know, essentially started from scratch to an extent? Well, you find that uh, you you have to market yourself as best you can, and uh, you can walk out your door and shout 
what you are interested in out your front door, but the people down the street aren't going to be able to hear, you know, so you have to create some opportunities to have people share the word and spread the word. And we're lucky that in this day and age, social media is really the way to do it. Um, but you gotta, you gotta sort of go one step further rather than just sort of have people find you, you sort of have to go to, I, I find if I'm writing a Twin Peaks story, I go to a Twin Peaks group and I, I share my story with them. You know, if I'm writing a story about Star Wars or collecting, you know, Star Wars, I'll go to collectors and Star Wars groups and uh, I'll find there are spikes in traffic and attention because it, it, we're t I'm talking about what they care about. So I talk about what I care about, but then I have to kind of, in, in addition to just sort of saying, I've got it, check it out, I have to sort of seek out the groups that would be interested in reading it in the first place. Yeah, no, that's kind of fair enough, I suppose, since, you know, it'd be just like throwing something out the front door and kind of expecting it to be taken up in the wind onto someone's desk kind of thing, which is quite good. Because I was looking at your Twitter account there, as uh, any researcher would, and <laughs> I was looking at all those Vincent Price ads, <laughs> which he was trying to sell just a lot of stuff. Uh huh. You missed a great uh, pun opportunity there, <laughs> Vincent. The yes. price is right. Right, the price is right. <laughs> I thought I, I figured it's been done before, so I thought I, you know, it, it, it's funny. That's that's one of those things where we were talking about earlier, where you never know what's going to hit. Um, I just did that because it was Vincent Price's birthday. I personally love that he, even though he was a pitch man for everything, he was he was a. He was a horror for an extra buck to put himself in an ad. And uh, by all means, that's great because he deserves the attention, well, deserved. But at the time, he, you know, he deserved recognition as being someone who represented a certain genre. Uh, and he was carving his own niche uh, with a cookbook and, and as sort of a connoisseur of fine food. But uh, he was a pitch man for everything. But um, I have sort of a bit of a personal connection with Monster Vitamins uh, I wrote I wrote I wrote a piece on uh, in Famous Monsters about it, but my dad was in uh, marketing and advertising, and um, he worked for a company called Bristol Myers that made, among other things, kitty vitamins. And they had these sort of cute animals called Pals vitamins, and then they did monsters, actually monster vitamins. And um, my dad was involved with marketing that, and uh, he was part of recruiting Vincent Price to be the pitch man for, for monster vitamins. It's nice, funny if you look nice. at monster vitamin logo, it's just like the famous monsters logo too. Yeah. I was just going to ask, was there any relation at all? Unrelated. I think they stole it from famous monsters and famous monsters just never sued. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it evokes the same sort of feel. And, uh, so I've always felt like a connection with that sort of angle and, uh, monster vitamins and feel like there was sort of an element from my own childhood that sort of strangely ties into this whole famous monsters universe. And, uh, yeah, but the other day, uh, it was his birthday. And so I posted that and then I sort of did a deep dive into some other advertisements and, uh, I posted a bunch of them and, you know, they got some shares here and there, but there was one that just sort of everyone decided they were interested in it. And I think it's probably my biggest, share and retweet and like you know on twitter that i've ever had simply yeah, for yeah. some goofy uh vincent price ads i think uh the shrunken heads game where you shrink you the know apples, you shrink apples yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the hangman game and you know uh i think he was pitching some 
some uh, VHS product and, and oh well, if I was getting paid to promote stuff, I'd be like, yeah, where do I sign? <laughs> I'd I'd keep uh, doing it until I wasn't relevant anymore. Yeah. So after all these years in the industry, what is your one standout moment that will forever be cherished in your heart? What would that be? Mm-hmm. If you have to pick up one, if you have to distill it down to one, it doesn't have to be a moment. It has. It can be a, a sort of a something that happened. Uh, I've been very lucky, and I've had an opportunity to translate my dreams into some form of job. And uh, I have never been starstruck, but I've been very enamored by certain filmmakers and stars and and behind the scenes craftspeople like say Rick Baker uh, that I've gotten an opportunity to talk to so many people that interest me and to hone my craft where I've been able to not only get an opportunity to talk to them but to try and get some nuggets of information that no one's ever heard before or a different perspective. Um, that's always been very, very, very interesting to me. And the fact that I got to do it with so many of my heroes, whether it's Mel Brooks or whether it's Mark Hamill or whether it's Rick Baker or James Cameron, the list is endless. And so collectively, I mean, from being able to say, (laughs) I'm incapable of a short story, but opportunity. (laughs) opportunities arise opportunities arise and i mean I, I i that star trek junket was a was a was a flashpoint for a lot of things uh i met heather langenkamp of the nightmare uh, on elm street franchise because she happened to be helping out her husband behind the scenes on a junket day where they were showing behind the scenes crafts of star trek into darkness and i looked over in the corner and i'm like why is Heather Langenkamp in this room? She has nothing to do with Star Trek in the darkness. This makes zero sense. And does anyone else see her or am I just imagining things? <laughs> so I walked up to her, another opportunity where I could have just said nothing, but I said, hi, you know, I, I in essence said, what are you doing here? And she's like, Oh, I'm just helping out my husband. Who's a, a makeup effects guy. And I started talking with her. And I, next thing I know, I invited her to talk about nightmare on Elm Street for for Entertainment Tonight. And next thing she's like, well, you know, we should do it in front of the Nightmare on Elm Street house in Hollywood. And you know what? Let me call Robert and see if he wants to do it too. And there I am with Robert England and Heather Langenkamp, Freddy Krueger and Nancy in front of the Elm Street house. And it's the first time they've reunited for an interview in front of that house since they last shot there. Jeez, you have a silver tongue, David. <laughs> right? Right? But I mean, I'm just like, wow, okay, that's that's amazing. And then, uh, again, I can go on a million tangents, but you asked me what's my favorite, and one of them that comes to mind is uh, Martin Landau. Um, I remember having an opportunity to – I reached out to him because I loved Space 1999 as a kid. You know, Ed Wood, uh, Crimes and Misdemeanors, Mission Impossible, uh, North by Northwest. I mean, he's a legend and he's an Oscar winner. But for me, the focal point was, you know what? It's the anniversary of Space 1999. Why don't I include that in Famous Monsters? And I reached out to my surprise. They said, sure. Do you want to talk to him in person? I'm like, well, yes, I do. And I, how much time do you want? Oh, you know, half hour. Well, come on down to his manager's office and we'll sit down. Well, we ended up having a four-hour talk 
because he loves to talk and he has amazing stories. And I felt like I got a one man show. And out of four hours of conversation, I had to end it because I had to pee really badly and drive across town back to <laughs> pick up my kid from daycare. You know, and it's like uh, opportunities like this, uh, they they transcend what you may initially set out to do. And they just present themselves if you just sort of throw, I mean, I'm not going to get all, you know, touchy-feely and, and, and new wavy about it. But, you know, if you, if you throw out a positive can-do attitude out there, eventually things will come back in your favor. Right. And just on that a little bit, do you think it was easier being in L.A.? Because it's like obviously the hub of it all. Because mm-hmm. you say the likes of me, you know, it's, you know, 20 past 9 p.m. And it's the morning for yourself. So if I have to get onto anyone in L.A. where it's all happening, I have to be willing to get up in the middle of the night if they're only back home at 8 p.m. Or, you know, it's, it, there's a little bit of barriers if you're not actually in the circle, would you say? It definitely it definitely helps uh, because everyone is available. You know, um, it's the difference between being able to talk to someone on the phone or having someone invite them, invite you to their home. Right. You know, I, I wanted to cover Logan's run. And so I reached out to Jenny Agater, who I was in love with. But uh, it's because I talked to her first for uh, American World from London reunion. Uh, but I ended up, I talked to her on the phone, but I said, I'd love to talk to you about Logan's run. She said, well, I don't have time, but why don't you call me back in a week? I'm happy to talk about that. Yeah. Chatting over there on the phone, but I also got to Michael York and Michael York said, Hey, why don't you come to my home and we'll sit down and we'll talk. And I'm sitting in front of Michael York talking about Logan's run and his career. Uh, I couldn't have done that if I wasn't in Los Angeles and, uh, it, a lot of it has to do with where you are, but you, you make your opportunities because I've had plenty of famous phone calls as opposed in in addition to sitting across from somebody whether it's in a studio or their home or in front of one of their landmark sets yeah and i suppose we've been filled with positivity and good vibes now tonight but i'm (laughs) I'm gonna flip it on its head and ask kind of what was the worst thing that's ever happened to you in the career has someone ever said you know like fuck off you're a loser this and the next like what's been the worst thing that you've experienced that maybe nearly derailed you or has it been genuinely positive for the most part if um, you can think about that well it's funny the first thing that comes to mind is when i saw a celebrity diss someone right next to me that i thought was pretty brutal and that cr- that cracks me up to no end when i think about that story but uh <laughs> well we can regale I- about that when we're not recording <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, exactly. I'll be, I, I won't I won't give this guy's name, but uh, there was a a rookie reporter next to me on the on the on the red carpet and uh, she normally when you're when you're asking questions on the red carpet, you ask something about the project and then if you have time for one more, you could sort of ask a more abstract question or another project. But her question, which was not a terrible question, she said, "What's the best piece of advice anyone's ever given you?" And this, this girl was from Us Magazine, which is a really well-known American magazine. I don't know if you have that across the pond, but it's like People Magazine or Entertainment Weekly. Yes, it's yes, it's yes, up yes. there. She, she wasn't like from, you know, uh, Girl Scouts, you know, weekly. And um, this guy looks at her and he goes, hmm, the best piece of advice everyone's ever given me. Why don't you drink a nice cup of shut the fuck up before you ask a stupid question? That was the best piece of advice <laughs> someone gave me. And this girl was wrecked after that. <laughs> Absolutely wrecked. Well, that happened to her. That didn't happen to you. <laughs> <laughs> to answer your question, 
I am I the way my mind is wired. Uh, I do not remember the negative stuff. I, if you jog my memory, it'll come up. But uh, I think of everything as a learning experience. And if something negative happens, I don't think of it as something that is something that would derail my my forward momentum. You know, I'd be like, oh, that didn't work. What else can I try or what other opportunities can I create for myself? Um, I literally w- would just be grabbing arbitrary things to to answer your question, but nothing resolutely comes to mind. Well, that's that's nice to hear. That's refreshing in uh, a place where you, you hear so much crap and bullshit happening. That is it's nice to hear that you've had a good run. It's perception. It's all your perception, you know. Perception I mean, it's reality, like, as they say. Dude, you're like, if I want to go to Los Angeles, where it's happening, you could go to Los Angeles, and it's all happening around you, and you could get absolutely nothing, and end up on the boulevard of broken dreams, like so many other people, because you think that it's supposed to land in your lap, and then you wonder what's wrong with no, everybody yeah. else. No, for, from the few people I've talked to that are actually in LA who have had some degree of success. They all would have the same message as you of kind of persistence is key and hard work and hustle will eventually get you somewhere. And then there's the yep. other people who think, I'm going to be the one that's going to make it. I'm going to be the star, but haven't laid the groundwork to an extent. And I definitely see myself just from an observer that you do need to lay the groundwork because I came into this project myself saying, ah, oh, this would be easy. I just record and, you know, send it out, upload it. But God almighty, the amount of editing that goes in and you have yeah. to time it and get people ready and you're back and forth and you maybe some weeks you don't have anyone lined up and it's down to the wire, you're up until all hours, just setting a known timeline and being disciplined like that. So, Well, that's the thing though, is you're doing it despite finding out that, oh, it's not as easy as I thought, but what got you into it in the first place? You thought I could do that and that would be fun and that's something I would be good at and I think I could do it, why, why shouldn't I? You know, if you knew all the reasons why you couldn't or shouldn't, you wouldn't do it. <laughs> you might as well curl and, up in a ball and die. <laughs> yeah. And boy, you know, if I if I thought about how difficult things ended up being for me, you know, making a magazine every month, you know, every, every as a bi-monthly magazine, yeah, the work involved in that is towering. Yet I dove into it with gusto with a very limited budget and very limited resources because I knew it was something that I wanted to do. It was a yeah. labor of love. Of course. You, know? you have to uh, have the passion, yeah. Yeah. I, no, I was just going to say, going back to what we were saying of, like, you have to... <laughs> I lost my train of thought. I think you were going to answer what I was just about to say. <laughs> well, well, I was, I was going to throw in a, a moment where I, I've, I think a lot of... A lot of my... You know, I, I'm... I'm uh, like many people. I'm my own worst enemy. Uh, I'm my own obstacle. Unless I consciously say, why am I saying no? Why am I not doing this? What, what, why is fear preventing me from doing this? Because you have to acknowledge that you're, you're afraid of doing something. Why? And, and what good would it do you if you don't do it versus if you do do it? But I use other people's uh, successes and failures as a barometer for that, that motivates me as well, you know, and for every person where I thought I couldn't do it. And then someone who I didn't think was as spectacular achieved what I thought I couldn't do. I've immediately jumped in and started swimming myself. I'm like, Oh, that they're, they're able to succeed doing that. Well, if they could do it, I could do it. Why didn't I do it earlier? But I had my own self doubts. Whereas 
I've also, I always use an example of, you know, I, I went to film school and a bunch of us came out right after film school and I had no job, but I, I had hopes and dreams and aspirations and perseverance and, and, and an expectation of a certain amount of luck to get me through the beginning of it. Yet I'll always remember this one guy who he were, you know, was a friend of mine. He worked on one of my movies and he put all his stuff in, in, in a, in a van drove over, you know, across the country from the East coast with his friends, had a job lined up from him with, uh, for him with Roger Corman's company. Mm -hmm. Um, he arrived after driving cross country with his friends, the Corman's company said, sorry, you know, we don't have the job anymore, but good luck. And, uh, yeah, that must've been tough. He, guess what he did? He turned around and he drove back home. That blew my, should have fucking stayed there. Jeez. Right, and that blows my mind that there are people who would put so much effort in all their eggs in one basket to go all across the country to move in and start a career. The job wasn't there, and he turned around, turned tail, and went back. And I always different use that. Strokes for different folks, isn't it? Yeah. Fucking hell. <laughs> America's a big continent. Like <laughs> That's a that's long, a long drive. drive. That's a long drive. I complain driving up and down the country here takes three hours <laughs> yes yeah, it's a three thousand mile trek and he's like oh i don't have a job i guess i'll go home yeah i think uh, the the longest uh road you can take is about 360 kilometers so <laughs> jesus it's about i don't know 300 miles 270 yeah. miles in ireland <laughs> so there you go it's the old adage is it the journey or is it the the destination you gotta oh, figure it Jeez, that's that's grim. So we, <laughs> I'll have one last question for you, right? All right. Um, because this is, we could probably talk all night, and I would love to talk to you all night, but we try. I try and keep this under a certain time. Yeah, well, most people have already turned off by now. I know that. Yeah, I know. I have the hardcore fans like uh, Chris. He's <laughs> he actually puts me onto so many people that he wants to listen to. He wouldn't talk well, to him himself, <laughs> but he's like, "Can you do the interview for me?" And here's well, the questions. Shout, <laughs> shout out to Chris for connecting us because it's a good, it's a good, good match. No, he's a good, he's a good guy. And uh, so I was just gonna ask, famous monsters, but what is the favorite monster of all time? Ooh, famous monsters, famous monster, famous monster. Um, I go back to the classics, and uh, if You're you go to the... pick one now this time, you can't say they're all your oh, favorites. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> all right, Creature from the Black Lagoon. Because yeah. Creature from the Black Lagoon, I was going to say I love all the Harryhausen creations, but um, with the classic monsters, Creature from the Black Lagoon, you know, it's probably between that and Godzilla, but if you really want sort of a basic monster comparing it to like the mummy and dracula and frankenstein the wolfman the creature from the black lagoon to me as a kid was clearly there there's not not someone in makeup or a suit i couldn't find a zipper i couldn't find the it, it just it was so real to me and if there was any doubt he was swimming so it had to be real yeah and uh and the fact that he didn't talk and he just sort of lumbered, moved slowly and had those sharp claws and looked like he was not of this earth, but partially sort of a lost link of evolution. I just love that whole concept. And so I'll, I'll, my vote goes, if you're making me, if you're gun to my head. Gun to your head. You're about to die now tonight. I've, yes. I've rang How'd my you... backdoor contacts <laughs> in LA. <laughs> Are the creatures here in the corner too? I'm yeah. going to set up with an interview with you. 
What's uh what's yours? Who's yours? Gun to Ooh, your head. Gun to my head, off the top of my head, I would have to say the thing from nineteen eighty two. Eighty two, do I have that correct? John Carpenter yep. is the thing anyway. Yep, yep. That is that movie to me is probably my all time favorite horror See, you, movie. You get to, you get to have your cake and eat it too, because the thing is multiple forms and multiple creations like i could i could cheat and be the say the xenomorph from alien because yes, you get yes. multiple stages no I, I just love it so much because in that movie just the special effects everything blew me away and i only watched it in we'll say the last 10 years for the first time and it just still holds up they did the remake in 2009 or 11 one of those yep. years the remake prequel fucking prequel movie. yeah and <laughs> it was awful Apparently, there's a hidden print of it where they did do it in practical effects, but they redid it all in CGI. But well, that could I could just be a rumor. Interject real quick that uh, the guys Tom Woodruff Jr. and Alec Gillis, who are Amalgamated Dynamics, which is a special effects house, those are the guys who did the Thing prequel. And uh, their biggest gripe, what, what's interesting, is you get to see some of their preliminary practical work. Because they did a lot of it, and uh, a lot of it had to do with with budget, yeah. and and what they're finding in with their biggest frustration with uh, the thing and lots of other films is that uh, producers will or studios and producers will reach out to them saying we want your great amazing effects work. You know they did uh, the Alien versus Predator movies and yeah and, yeah yeah and uh, Tremors and so on and so forth and a million things Alien three and. Um, they don't want to pay for it. But surely so, it's cheaper than CGI because you hear CGI running up into the millions, isn't it? It's Well, they think that there be, it's a sort of a penny-wise, pound-foolish arrangement because they think that they're saving money by doing CGI and they end up uh, spending more money trying to match uh, the practical effects work. And there's usually a disparity where you could tell what's practical and you could tell what's CGI and they either leave it or they end up redoing things. And yeah. with the thing, a lot of practical stuff, and they ended up replacing it with CGI. Passing double because they did do the practical, yeah. And and you get everyone's frustration with it. I, I, I will stand by the thing prequel, even though I've seen it only once, uh, in that at least I think it, it uh, there's a satisfactory connection as a prequel to the original. Yes, uh, but it was the same movie America. as the original but a prequel. <laughs> I was like, "What?" Yeah. Plus, okay. I love okay. I love Mary uh, Elizabeth Winstead. I think she could do no wrong. She was amazing in uh, Cloverfield Lane, and she's yeah. amazing in Argo right now, and also uh, you know everything she does. You know, I, I don't know is that Scott, cheating, but Scott that's, yeah, that's definitely just the standout for me. The thing, uh, maybe Godzilla. Godzilla is a cool dude. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that's right. We're talking about our one favorite thing that we have to choose. So, yeah, yeah, no, I'd probably pick that because I know I love practical effects because if they're done well, they will stand the test of time. But we all give out about the ropey CGI from the 90s that's in a lot of things or the early noughties. And it's like, why? It's just uh, I, I, I am just a huge fan of practical effects. And uh, I think if there's something tangible visibly on the screen it doesn't matter if it if you could tell that it's a practical effect i will go with that nine times out of ten compared to cgi because it's real it exists in reality so the lighting the texture everything is real so it doesn't matter if it looks fake it is real 
the best CGI is is a non-creature CGI where you don't realize that you're you're watching CGI, the invisible CGI where David you're. Fincher is great at that, isn't he? Yeah, in, embelli- embellishing the environment without drawing attention to it is the best use of CGI, in my opinion. Yeah, of course. So, David, to conclude, any words of wisdom? Not that I'm well, trying to I... kick you off. No, no, no. Well. Can... Any words of wisdom for the uh, for the crowd here? Uh, I think everyone should. Uh, I, I I I'll give you some word of, words of wisdom because there's so many. But if if someone's listening to a podcast and they love horror and and this sort of genre pop culture entertainment, I advise you to stand by what makes you happy. Whether it's a guilty pleasure or whether you think something's great or think something's terrible. Uh, I think I think your opinion is valid, but I don't think you should squash other people, uh, especially strangers, with your opinion. Uh, don't don't run out there and troll if you think something sucked, telling the world that it sucks. Uh, I think everyone's opinion should be valid and respected, and uh, I think there should be a little more nuance out there in terms of how you perceive things and uh you know it's not a black and white world it's not like everything is either great or terrible there's nuances there's gray areas you know if you if you love marvel and you hate dc guess what there's there's actually great moments in dc movies if overall it's a disappointment or you know uh and and if i've learned anything in film school is that if any film that you choose there could be it could be the worst film in the world uh, there, there has to be some redeemable moment, whether it's a camera move, whether it's a, uh, unexpected, uh, take that they never, that, that is clearly, obviously a sort of inspired moment. Uh, you could at least walk away with, with some hope in the future of cinema that there's opportunities out there to, to entertain. And hopefully we get out of, uh, prequel, sequel, remake territory and, and stick with original ideas. Yes, well, I don't know. Have you been following the uh, short film scene in the last couple of years? But oh my God, the stuff coming out yeah. there is yeah amazing. So I have high hopes for the future of feature filmmakers when all the old boys shuffle off the mortal coil. Yeah, you know what? It's it's it doesn't matter. It's so much easier now because you've got. Uh, you know, when I was in film school, I had to pay for film stock and it was expensive. Now you can make a movie on your on your phone and uh, you're as great or as terrible as your talent and drive. So uh, while there's always going to be mediocre content out there, uh, it only takes some inspiration and drive to follow through on your idea to you never know. You could be the next person. That the cream will rise to the top. As they say. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So, David, where can we find you online? It's plug time. All right, plug time. Go to uh, itcamefromblog.com. Uh, you could also find that by way of Facebook, at itcamefromblog, or by way of Instagram, at itcamefromblog. Or you can find my Twitterings at uh, uh, Tiki and Best. That's right. And uh, if you find me on Facebook, uh, where it's just my name, uh, I doesn't mean I don't love you, but that's my private stuff. So you could just find me on it came from blog and all those other social media uh, avenues. Excellent stuff. Well, David, a pleasure to talk to you. I'm sure we could have talked an hour on each topic you brought up today, and uh, we might have you on again in the future if you'd be up for that. 
yeah so uh yeah enjoy the rest of your day and i'll enjoy a bit of sleep <laughs> i appreciate the interest i think your i think your podcast is wonderful and keep up the great work and uh spread the good word and thanks for having me on you heard it here first folks i i got the another recommendation <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna tell guillermo the creature from the black lagoon and who was the other guy mark hamill there you go <laughs> Excellent stuff, David. Cheers for coming on and uh, talk to you again soon. Take care. And that, everyone, was my chat with David. I had a great fun with that one, and I'm sure you did too. It was very insightful into the world of LA journalism, I suppose. And once again, I am on the road. I am sitting back and kicking it up in Malta as I record this little finisher. I'm all over the place. I was in Sweden last week, traveling all around with work and getting podcasts in when I can. So I'm going to leave a lot of information in the show notes if you want to see more of David's adventures in It Came From Blog.com and other areas. And don't touch his Facebook, as he said. And as always, if you like the show, drop an old review. It really helps. As I've seen in the last couple of weeks, things are kind of snowballing at the minute. So thank you to everyone for listening. I really appreciate all the love coming from everyone. Now, I alluded to it during the show. We're going to finish on a very appropriate track from Werewolves in Siberia, from the EP In Memoriam, track number five. Welcome to the Acker Mansion, home of the famous monsters. And you can find me on Twitter, as always, at The Fear Merchant, and for everything else, TheFearMerchant.com. So until next time, be safe and stay out of trouble.
come back any time.